Welcome to Politically Pissed. My name is Saeed Charbini, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Simon and Katya. Hello. Welcome. And we have a few special guests today. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. I'll start with you. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi, I'm Nader Hashmi. I'm the director of the Center for Middle East Studies here at the University of Denver. And um, I'm uh, you know, very concerned about what's happening in northeastern Syria with uh, these developments that have brought us all here today, not just the Turkish invasion or incursion, if you will, but also what this means for regional stability in the Middle East, of which there's very little of, but also the global repercussions that are flowing or will flow from this particular crisis. Um, So I have a lot to say on the topic, and I look forward to engaging with my fellow guests on this um, very depressing topic, but thank you for the invitation. Thank you for joining us again. We appreciate you coming back, too. Go ahead. Hi, my name is um, Ismail Akbulut. I am the board president of the Multicultural Mosaic Foundation, and I identify as a participant of the so-called Gulen movement. And um, I thank you for having me on your show. And just to give uh, some brief information on where I stand on this issue, if you're looking at this issue of the invasion of Turkey, of um, the north of Syria, from the perspective of Turkey is coming into Syria to bring democracy and peace or to help the Syrian people, or to fight against terrorism, I think this notion, this opinion is, in my opinion, very misleading. Um, There's a deeper reason why Turkey is invading Syria, and the reason lies in Turkey's ambition for the, ambitions for the region, its neo-Ottoman um, reasons. And at the same time, I believe there is domestic issues in Turkey that Turkey, the Turkey's president Erdogan is trying to address um, with this invasion. Um, so whenever the president of Turkey saw that his power, his power um, decreased um, in recent Turkish history, he usually um, started uh, um, creating a um, scapegoat, dehumanized that scapegoat, and he attacked that scapegoat. And right now um, the target group are the Kurds, um, and he is right now invading um, Syria to distract from the issues that he is going through in Turkey, the economy, the high um, unemployment rate, the inflation, um, the anti-Syrian refugee sentiments in Turkey. He's distracting from, th- from that, and he's trying to create cohesion in Turkey. And he is successful doing that. Even the ultra-secularist, which group he lost the last elections to, are with him in the same boat, supporting this invasion of Syria, um, attacking the Kurds. So I'm very grateful that you invited me, and I, I'm very concerned about the current situation. Go ahead. Okay, um, my name is Obeid Kafo, National Board Member of the Syrian American Council. I have been following up on this issue, crisis in Syria, for the last about nine years, give or take. Um, I have family have died under the Assad regime. The crisis in Syria is really bothersome to me personally, obviously being a Syrian American, um, my family being originally from Aleppo. Uh, this hits home. Uh, everyone's discussing all these factions and all these groups, uh, but none of them are actually Syrian. Maybe to the detriment to everybody, they keep thinking that they know what's going on and no one's talking about it from a Syrian perspective, from a Syrian-American perspective. Those who have lost lives uh, and family members to this crisis may have a different approach to what's going on because the crisis has gotten so bad. And so 
uh, I look forward very much, and I'm very happy to be here, and I appreciate my fellow uh, guests with me, um, and I look forward to the discussion. Awesome. Thank you. All right. I want to start with sort of the lay of the land. The Kurdish people, their culture spans a couple different cult countries. And I feel like maybe, Nader, you might have uh, a better way of explaining this than most of us. So if you could sort of lay that out. And then if you two can jump in at any point, if you feel like you can help him or have something else to add to it, um, please just sort of explain where they are, what's going on, who, who they are, basically. The Kurds are a distinct ethnic group in the Middle East, um, located roughly where the borders of uh, Iran, Turkey, uh, Syria, and Iraq intersect. Uh, roughly 30 million, most of them are in, in Turkey, but there's sizable populations in Iran, Iraq, and in Syria there's the smallest number of Kurds, roughly 2 million. And historically speaking, as your listeners should know, the Kurds have been very poorly treated by the countries that they reside in. There's been a long-standing civil war in Turkey between Kurdish separatist groups, um, not all Kurds, but at least Kurds in Turkey who aspire to greater autonomy and independence, and the Turkish government. Arguably, the worst condition that um, or experiences that the Kurds have had in their modern history has been in Iraq under Saddam Hussein, where in the late 1980s they were subject to um, what human rights groups call a genocide, known as the UNFAL. Um, and, you know, Iran hasn't treated its Kurdish population um, very well, neither has uh, Bashar al-Assad. So they've aspired for, you know, independence and um, self-determination. They've been denied that by... Um, the great powers that carved up the modern Middle East, and uh, the Kurds have been denied uh, self-determination and at least autonomy within the states that they live in. So this has been, you know, a, a long-standing uh, conflict that the Kurds have had with their host governments, and what we're seeing right now is just the latest phase of, I think, persecution um, and ill treatment by the Kurds from, you know, the neighboring countries and the authoritarian regimes that rule over them. Would it be safe to say that this all pretty much goes back almost to World War One, where they divided up the area? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you if you know the history, the Middle East um, prior to World War One was largely controlled by um, the remnants of the Ottoman Empire, and when it came to drawing the borders, you know, no one really thought that the Kurds had any particular strategic value for anyone. Um, and so they ended up, um, this distinct ethnic group uh, ended up being carved up between four countries. The idea of um, recognizing um, federalism or respecting um, um, ethnic and religious pluralism in these new emerging states was a struggle that is still ongoing. And so there's been a desire for this particular ethnic group um, that's not Arab, but it's eth ethnically Kurdish, um, to um, have their identity recognized within the states that they live in, and that's always been a very difficult endeavor because many of these states have been authoritarian, have been brutal, have been repressive, who don't uh, uphold human rights or democracy, and when the Kurds uh, started to form their own nationalist group and resist, there was a, you know, deeper repression that they suffered. Uh, and one other element that's important here since we're in the United States, the Kurds have been historically betrayed by the great powers. There's a long history that we could talk about, and this is just, I think, the latest betrayal that um, we're witnessing, um, and that just compounds the tragedy. Awesome. All right, so I want to move on to talking about Turkey and Syria. Ismail, you're, um, you're focused mainly on Turkey. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about the Turkish government and what they're doing, and what sort of the end goal you think might be? 
Sure, I, um, I can try. So the Turkish current Turkish government, the Justice and Development Party, in short AKP, um, has been in power since the year of 2001. And they got in power with a manifesto that they will be a conservative democ democratic party, um, promoting democracy in Turkey and in the neighboring countries. And they said their ambition is to join the European Union. They did that well, actually, for the la first two um, periods, most likely. Um, they um, promoted democracy, human rights, um, gave minorities um, more rights in Turkey. And they, and they gained a lot of popular support by doing that. However, towards the end of the second term of, um, at that time, Prime Minister Erdogan, uh, we saw that corruption was um, very visible in the Turkish government. And a corruption probe was um, introduced by the Turkish police forces and the prosecutors and so on. Um, however, President Erdogan um, turned all these um, allegations down. He said, this is a... Um, coup against me um, by the CIA, Mossad in Israel, and the local actor of the Gulen movement, so the movement that I'm part of. Um, and he went after the prosecutors, the judges, the police officers, and he arrested all of them right after that, um, or re um, replaced them. What year was that? Um, I think that was in the year 2012-13, um, right um, in December of that year. Um, so after that happened, um, media outlets that reported about um, the corruption in Turkey were targeted as well. Journalists were detained and arrested. Following that, in the year 2016, July 15, there was a coup attempt in Turkey. Um, a fraction within the Turkish military tried to overthrow the Turkish government. Within a few hours of that coup attempt, Erdogan had already, he already knew who um, was behind that. He accused again the Gulen movement and the CIA uh, being behind it. And um, that night uh, and the following days, thousands of people were arrested by the Turkish government. Prosecutors again, police officers, judges, and this time media um, outlets were shut down by the Turkish government. Schools, teachers were arrested, um, housewives, uh, babies. Right now there is about 900 babies in Turkish prisons, along with their moms who are um, housewives or teachers or, and whatever. Um, so he went after this sector of um, the Turkish society. Um, around that time, in 2000, um, right before that, in 2015, actually, there were um, elections in Turkey. Um, and that, that election was actually very important for Turkish history. Um, the Kurds, first time in Turkish history that Erdogan himself worked with, actually. He started peace talks with the Kurds, and um, that went actually very well until June 2015. Um, in June 2015, for the first time in Turkish history, the Kurds made it into the parliament. The Kurdish pro-Kurdish party made it into the parliament and said they will not support Erdogan as a president. Um, when they made it into the parliament and the, um, they won the elect, when Erdogan lost the elections, but he could not form a coalition government, Erdogan introduced um, new elections um, a few months later. Um, so a few months later, new elections took place. But now, when he saw that he couldn't work with the Kurds anymore, uh, he worked close with the, uh, with the nationalists. So he played that card. So he turned away from um, the, um, the Kurds, and then he became very authoritarian um, and oppressive against the Kurds. He built an alliance with the Turkish nationalist fascist MHP party, um, and since then he has that alliance. He won the upcoming elections in 2015, 
and since 2015 he he's playing the islamo-fascist um, card um, and he is oppressing minorities including the kurds and i think what we're seeing right now in syria is just part of that um, that he is again in a recession he's losing power and he's trying to um, attack um, escape gold which are the kurds so there was that election, right, in, in Istanbul, where the party candidate uh, was against Erdogan. He lost, and Erdogan somehow managed for a second round of votes, and he lost again. And so is this part of what you're describing as him sort of losing ground and being desperate about, you know, finding another enemy, another scapegoat? Yes, exactly. And when he lost the second elections, actually, he went after the Kurds, as I mentioned, and the two part- the, the party leaders, all of them, are right now in prison. So Erdogan arrested the pro-Kurdish party leaders. He, um, all of them are right now in prison, and the party is right now basically dysfunctional. All right, thank you very much. And Obeid, if you could help us understand from your perspective, from the Syrian-American activist perspective, of the civil war that has happened there and how we got to this point, um, we would appreciate that. So, I mean, the situation in Syria is very complicated, and without going into it for hours and hours, essentially... The, the core idea is that the Syrian population were tired of the authoritarian regime of Assad, the way he was oppressing people, the way there was a lack of freedom of speech, the, the lack of freedom of expression, uh, free trade. There, there's a, a million and one things that uh, allowed the, the, the general public of Syria to say, hey, you know what, we're tired of this, we're going to protest. And as a result of the Arab Spring, essentially, people stood up. Now, this is one thing that people didn't expect, was that they didn't think they were going to get shot at. Okay? They didn't think they were going to get shot at. They thought, like everybody else, they would, there would be a, a movement, and then if enough people believed in it, then everyone would join, as everyone did. But then suddenly Assad decided to shoot them. You didn't have to be even a protester. You could have been in the, in, in the neighborhood. You could have been in the city. It didn't matter. And then there was a, raise, a rise of uh, an armed opposition. And defectors from the Syrian military joined the Free Syrian Army. And as a result, uh, the Free Syrian Army became uh, was backed by the United States government for almost a year, almost two years, if I'm not mistaken. For some reason, I have my own reasonings, but the United States decided to not support them anymore. And Can you maybe elaborate on some of your reasons? Well, there's a million and one reasons. Everyone has their own opinion on it. Uh, to me, to me, I think that there was some, maybe some uh, internal discussions, let's put it that way, that didn't want the United States to get dragged into this because we, we had just gotten involved with Libya. Libya was just fresh on our minds. And the, with, with, uh, with the opposition, there was fears that, well, moderate Muslims, uh, Arabs, okay, maybe, why not? But, you know, we know those Kurds, though. We've known those Kurds for a while. Yeah, we burned them in Iraq a few years ago, but we can probably use them again, right? Probably. Let's see what, what we can do. And so what ends up happening is as the Kurds were, I mean, the Kurdish forces, and I want to be very distinct here. Uh, when I speak of the Kurds, I'm actually, I have family that's actually Kurdish. Uh, half my cousins are actually half Kurdish. My great aunt, no, excuse me, my great grandmother from my dad, my grand, my mother's side, she is Kurdish. So I am very, very close to this issue. This issue is very close to me, both as a Syrian and having some background of folks who are actually Kurdish. And so, um, 
the folks who are being called in the media as Kurds, it's, it's the Kurds, the, we're attacking the Kurds, we're not backing up the Kurds. It, it's not the Kurds, it's not the population of the Kurds. I, there are Kurds in Aleppo right now that aren't with the, in Raqqa and Deir Zor and Ras Al Ain, in, in these areas that are supposedly supposed to be under Kurdish control. Okay? For a lot of the Kurdish people, they're Syrian. A lot of these people are Syrian. From day one, they were Syrian. Their passports are all Syrian. I mean, the ones that are in Syria. Okay? And they understand both the, the background, the culture, the language. The, we, obviously, we, we, we marry into each other's families. There is a very strong bond between the Syrian at large that are particularly Arab and maybe even Christian, and then have uh, the Kurdish population who happen to be Muslim and Sunni. right? And so when you have uh, a group of people who find a vacuum where people are rising up against the government and you have a populate, an opposition against Assad, people start finding a way, how does this benefit me? How can I find, there are people out there who find, out, find ways, how does this benefit me? And so you have people like Daesh come up from Iraq that turns into ISIS, right? And then we get the Kurds organizing with the, you know, I'm not going to name them particularly because there's so many. I think there, I think there's three predominantly that we, we talk about almost all often. And to me, they're all in, in the wrong, okay, the Kurdish forces. And they are now saying that they are going to do the work that the United States isn't willing to do. In other words, we're not going to put troops on the ground. Kurds, we're going to back you up. Here's the money. Here's the influence. Do what you need to do. Okay? And obviously with, I think, 80 other countries, I think, with fighting ISIS, including Russia, right? And so going after ISIS, which is a threat, right? And ISIS uses the whole uh, religious factions, you know, the whole extremism part of it to say, hey, we're, we're, we're going to create a caliphate. This is what we're going to do. Come join us. Whether you're in Europe, United States, this is what we're going to do. The Kurds did the same thing, but except, and I mean the Kurdish forces, what they decided to do was the same thing, but use an ethnic and say, if we're Kurdish, you should come and join us. Now, I'm not saying that they're all Kurdish, right? Some forces aren't. Like, for example, in the Free Syrian Army, there's, there's Kurdish people, there's Christian people, there's Syrians, there's Shia, there's Alawi. There's a bunch of people. And, and Because they're a movement of moderates that are actually Syrian, that are tired of the Assad regime, period. But when you have a, a, an op, uh, a group that has their own agenda, they're not, if, if they were really sincere about uh, getting rid of Assad, which they really aren't, because if they were, they wouldn't have helped Assad in 2015 uh, with the fall of Aleppo. So there are, there are just things that are, maybe some people are good, but they're not, they're not the worst, right? But they're the better of the two evils. That's not, a, that's not acceptable for the Syrian people. If you are a Syrian, you care about the problems that are happening in Syria, that you want to free Syria from Assad, which they do, the Kurds do, of course they do. They've been suffering under Assad just like the rest of the Syrians have they would join the Free Syrian Army. But they have their own agendas. They have their own reasonings. And so because of that, now you have this uh, year and a half, maybe, uh, where ISIS has predominantly been dwindled down to almost nothing. And the Kurds have been essentially taking over a lot of places where they've been selling oil, where they've been using Syrian resources. My question, for a lot of people who maybe disagree with me, is what was the end game for the United States and, and and the Kurdish forces when everything was over. What were they expecting? When Assad, let's say, leaves at some point, and obviously the Kurds stay where, the Kurdish forces stay where they're at, what were they expecting to happen at the end? Another a, a, a territory? Were they gonna plan taking land for the Kurdish people? 
now suddenly Syrians are forced to give away their land? Or were they not going to fight for it? I mean, the people who left to, to Turkey because of the bombardment of ISIS and Assad, were they supposed to just leave and not come back to their own homelands because now the Kurds, uh, the Kurdish forces have taken it? So I, I think that <clears throat> transitions to an interesting point. So if I'm not mistaken, there are 3.6 million Syrian refugees in Turkey, uh, most of whom are ethnic Arab. Um, and so the Kurds fear that Erdogan, the Turkish government, is basically trying to populate about 2 million of the Arab refugees, Syrian Arab refugees in Turkey, uh, in the Turkish-Syrian border. In other words, separate the Kurdish Syrians from you know their, their brethren, their ethnic brethren in, in Turkey. And I guess uh, Obey does have you know a, a valid point in terms of I think the assumption is that everyone seems to be on board with Kurdistan, right, becoming a free state at, at some point. Um, that's, that's debatable. Okay, yeah, and so I wanted yeah, to, to I mean, have you I weigh mean, in I on mean, this. Morally, the Kurds deserve their own state. The problem is politically, there's no country in the region and no country in the international system perhaps with the exception of Israel, but I don't think Netanyahu is being serious when he claims he supports Kurdish uh, independence. That is willing to support an independent Kurdistan. And the, and the reason is very simple, because the international community um, is very fearful if they uh, allow for a Kurdish independent state to form from an existing state. That will set a precedent where other minority groups in other states can then make the same claim, and that will lead to greater destabilization. So there's a lot of sympathy for Kurdish suffering but there's no um, serious support among any of the global powers or regional powers for an independent Kurdish state. And that's the tragedy of the Kurds. They deserve a state based on, I think, um, simple principle of self-determination. But um, they're living in a very um, uh, a tough region um, where there's a lot of authoritarianism that um, limits their ability to operate. And so it's unfortunately, in my lifetime, I just don't see the Kurds ever getting an independent state. And, and that's the tragedy of the Kurds. I have a question. What has most Americans stumped right now is that the right wing of the Republican Party is now mad at Trump. He is still continuing with this support of Turkey. Um, would you three individually like to answer what your theory is and why he would be doing this and in, in separating mm -hmm. from the right wing of the Republican Party? Yeah, I have my own thoughts. I'll quickly say it's, you know, when it comes to trying to figure out what Trump is thinking, it's really anyone's guess. True. But I think in this case, it's pretty clear that he is um, listening to that minority group of Republicans that have a worldview similar to the worldview of Senator Rand Paul in Kentucky, the deep isolationist strand um, American politics and the Republican Party that believes that, you know, the United States should not be involved in global um, military expeditions. We should bring the troops home. We have no business being there. And and Trump has ramped up that rhetoric over the last few days. He's consistently sort of made these claims, which actually resonate within the base of his party, but also resonate within the broader United States, because people uh, after Iraq, after Afghanistan, they're tired of the cost, the expense. And I think he's hoping in the lead up to an election to um, take that to the bank and increase his support by um, playing that particular card. It does have a certain resonance, and I think that's very much what the plan is. And of course, 
to justify that plan, he's invoking a lot of deeply um, stereotypical and just factually wrong claims, such as, you know, these people have been fighting for thousands or hundreds or thousands of years. They never get along. Why should we be in the middle of them? You know, things that sort of, uh, you know, are just borderline, um, you know, prejudicial and bigoted, you know, as if um, as if Europe and the West and the United States and all their ethnic groups have always gotten along very perfectly. That's sort of the assumption. Mm. And so I think that's very much what he's trying to do. I suspect at the end of the day, the Republican uh, Party establishment are going to rally around the president. I don't think they're going to break with him on this. I think one reason why they're breaking with him is because it's been such a blatant sort of stabbing in the back of the Kurds. They were the ones who the United States were backing, allying. We relied on them to do the heavy fighting to crush ISIS. And then now that um, Turkey is invading, it's so um, it's so blatant and in your face that it's very hard to sort of you know justify um, Trump's position. And so that's that's my reading. My observation was he broke with the evangelicals who have been his main support, and that really surprised me. I, I, have the evangelicals weighed in on this? I mean, I've heard Pat Robertson saying that Trump won't go to heaven because I've, I've he's heard sort that. of, you know, but I think for the evangelicals, the evangelicals don't really care about the Kurds. What they care about is their own ideological doctrine, and fundamentally, they care about Israel. Israel. And so as long as that stays secure, so even though John Bolton, who was, you know, a, a pro-Israel hawk, even though he's out of the picture, and that's gotten a lot of these right-wing pro-Israel, you know, fanatics, um, you know, very upset, at the end of the day, um, you know, while they don't like Iran and they, they you know, they, 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 they hope that Trump would attack Iran during this, these, these recent moments of tension, the evangelicals and the core base, base of support, what they're fundamentally obsessed with is the second coming of Christ, the state of Israel. And as long as that stays within um, an area of safety and security for this particular group, they're not going to break with Trump. Um, speaking of evangelicals, if we can maybe uh, zoom in into northern Syria, because we're not just talking about Kurds, right? There's also Assyrians there, uh, the Syriac or uh, Neo-Aramaic-speaking people, you know, who identify under different names, but who are Christian, who are indigenous to this land. There's also Yazidis there who are arguably ethnic Kurds that practice Zoroastrianism. There are also Armenians there who were driven out of Turkey during the Armenian Genocide. My own grandfather and grandmother on my father's side were born in Aleppo because of the Armenian Genocide, and we still have family in, in parts of Syria. I think to a lot of these people, the issue is an existential threat. They saw ISIS as an existential threat. They see Turkey as an existential threat. You know, A lot of people throw out the word genocide a lot, uh, and, and maybe that does not resonate with a lot of people, but for me as an Armenian, seeing Turkey, a country that was built on an unpunished genocide that it you know, denies and threatens to repeat, um, that does make sense of that existential threat that those minorities face. But in terms of evangelicals, do they see any solidarity? If not, maybe the Kurds, maybe the Assyrian Christians there, or others who are also facing um, you know, potential extinction if whether directly from Turkey or if ISIS is unleashed. I mean, I have my own thoughts on that. I mean, if no, no, you want to, I mean, I don't think the evangelicals are driven by a certain ethical commitment to human rights in fighting people who are possibly subjected to mass extermination. So I think there has been, as part of the broader sort of uh, North American 
um, political landscape, this attempt by certain Christian groups to go to the defense of other persecuted Christian communities around the world. But I think it's very self-serving, and I think it's very hypocritical um, because I don't think there's a strong, you know, moral commitment behind it. It's very tribalistic, and it's and it's really an attempt to try and convert people to a certain brand of Christianity. Um, so I'm not familiar with the details as to whether the, the evangelicals are, you know, active in this part of Syria. I think you know it's fundamentally misleading to try and um, uh, connect them to any sort of ethical commitment to uphold human rights, particularly to stop the possibility of genocide happening. That's that's not part of their um, you know um, part of their raison d'etre. In many ways, these evangelical Christians are very happy and comfortable to ally themselves with you know very deeply repressive and authoritarian regimes in the Middle East, particularly the House of Saud in Saudi Arabia, where evangelical delegations have been going and embracing you know, the notorious um, crown prince himself, otherwise known as the talented Mr. Bonesaw, because they view him and his alliance with Israel as a way of advancing their ideological, ideological agenda. And this is the same crown prince who was presiding over war crimes in Yemen and spreading Wahhabi Islam throughout the Islamic world with toxic results. And then we could talk about, we can talk about Egypt too, you know, there's a nasty sort of fascist dictator in, in Egypt that the evangelicals sort of love and embrace, and he came to power in the context of a massacre in the summer of 2013 that Human Rights Watch called, you know, the worst massacre of, uh, of Egyptian civilians in modern history and was tantamount to crimes against humanity. So, I mean, if you want to go through the record, there's not a lot to, I think, uh, um, admire among the evangelicals and their, and, their, and their Middle East policies. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's actually quite a, um, a, a tragic track record um, that I think should be condemned. Yeah, I mean, I have some evangelical Christian friends, and they tell me that they um, care about the issue. I don't want to speculate on their motivation. It might be, uh, it might not be ethics. It might be because it's a, an ally of the United States. Um, many of them have written um, statements to pressure President Trump to pull back his decision to support um, Turkey invading um, Syria. You asked a question about um, Trump supporting Turkey and Erdogan, so. Yes, I think in terms of personalities, if you look at Erdogan himself, the Turkish president, and Trump, and you, you would see a lot of similarities in, in their authoritarian um, attitudes. Um, however, um, just a few hours ago, we saw that Trump actually introduced or is going to introduce sanctions against Turkey. So um, the, the pressure by um, U.S. legislators actually helped um, to introduce sanctions. And at the same time, we saw that the Kurdish forces um, build an alliance now with um, Assad. Um, so overall, if you look at the issue, I would say it is a loose issue for the United States and for Turkey and for the Kurds. The winner in this um, situation short term um, is most likely Russia. Um, Assad built an alliance with the Kurds, and um, Turkey is being pushed back from the West because of the sanctions, and might get closer to Iran, um, Russia, and, um, and the Syrian government as well. Short-term-wise, um, his decision to support Erdogan in invading Syria did not help at all. Um, he's pulling back right now, but I don't know if that pulling back is going to help the issue in Syria. I think the sanctions will help the people in Turkey, but it may not help the people in Syria. I love that you said Russia. It feeds back into the idea of, so if all this benefits Russia, is that maybe some of the motivation that Trump felt? No, you don't think so? I mean, look, there's a lot of talk about Trump's 
affinity toward Putin and why he hasn't been critical or never condemns him in public. I think it's a stretch to say that Trump's decision to uh, pull American troops out of northeastern Syria and allow Russia to invade is part of a larger plot so that Putin can extend his hand. I think that's there's no evidence of that. That's borderline conspiracy theory. I think the inevitable result of the um, of the the shuffling of the deck is that Putin um, benefits because you know they have what's called skin in the game. They have troops in Syria. They have uh, relations with all of the countries in the region. They're willing to project power while the United States now under Trump and previously under Obama. And I think we need to talk about Obama because the problems of Syria go back to Obama. And I think he's gotten off free. And it's very disgusting to see these former Obama officials go on TV now and talk about the suffering of Syrian civilians. Uh, but but getting back to Russia, uh, I, I, I don't think, yes, Russia benefits, and they are benefiting, uh, but I don't think um, um, it's, it's fair or accurate to say that Trump is making these decisions because he's secretly, you know, trying to advance, advance Russia's interests in the Middle East. Obeid, what do you think about these sanctions that will indirectly help Assad? Right now, Assad is, a, is the weakest hand in all of this. I don't think Assad has any room to talk at all of anything. The only thing he was able to do was just like a couple hours ago was where he was able to work with the Kurds now to fight against against the Turkish. And that kind of solidifies for me the intent for the Kurdish forces. They, if they were really, I'll give you a really good example, Idlib. Idlib, we haven't talked at all here, but Idlib is, has been under the, essentially the, the government, the pseudo governance, and essentially protection of the opposition from the beginning, from the beginning, almost close to now, maybe eight years now at this point, right? They've been bombarded by Assad and Russia for almost eight years. They lost Aleppo. That was their last kind of place they had, and now they, all they have is, is Idlib, and Idlib is around three million people now. Okay, if these people are so gung-ho about Syria, right? The, the whole argument is that they're there for, their, for themselves. They're there for, for our right to land. That's the whole argument. They wouldn't be fighting for the opposition. They were, they're, they're fighting for their own interests. And so at the end of the day, when you side with Assad, the same person that you were fighting eight years against then why team up with him now? Now is it a deal with the devil? So if we're gonna if we're gonna say that Turkey's so bad, so bad for doing this now, then why haven't we done this with Russia? Russia's been doing this for eight years. Why aren't we calling that a genocide? Why are we calling these folks the Christian folks? Because they're all being attacked. Why aren't we saying that's a genocide or that's a massacre? We have been. We've been screaming and yelling at it, but we've never done this much. We've never, we've never had the Republicans and the Democrats freak out over this. We've never done it. But now suddenly we're crying wolf over the two, two out of the three forces, the Kurdish forces, are considered terrorist and maybe not so terrorist. And the other one we're just supporting, the SDF. And we're supposed to cry wolf over this? And now, and I knew this was going to happen. I knew the Kurdish forces were going to work with Assad. They did it in 2015 with Aleppo. They, they need land. They want land. That's their whole argument. So if better yet, if the opposition can lose in Aleppo, great. That's more opportunity for us. 
And so the argument that right now Turkey is doing something horrific, I agree. It is not a good look. But let me tell you something. Iran getting involved is not a good look. Russia getting involved isn't a good look. Russia killing its people is not a good look. Using chemical weapons isn't a good look. Now we have ISIS coming in and killing our own Syrians. I mean, it is all not a good look. And some of them are a part of the, the, the UN. I mean, it is ridiculous that Russia still has a seat at the UN, for God's sakes. Assad still has a seat at the UN. I just uh, wanted to add that um, on the issue of um, the Kurdish forces, I would respectfully disagree with Ubaid. I see the, the Kurds in Syria, they are indigenous people of Syria. And they have been oppressed um, in Syria as well, in other places such as in Turkey. Simon mentioned the Armenian genocide. Um, the Armenians lived in several different um, countries when the genocide took place, in the Russian Empire, in the Persian Empire, and in the Ottoman Empire. And their loyalty was always questioned. And right now, the loyalty of the Kurds to their countries are also questioned. They were oppressed, and they did not get basic rights in the countries they lived in. For instance, in Turkey, for decades, they were not allowed to speak their own language. They were not allowed to educate in their own language. They not, were not allowed to practice and to celebrate their cultures. And I think this issue that we are seeing in Syria right now, from the very beginning of the revolution or the Arab Spring, we saw that um, these groups, such as the Kurds, they tried to find a way um, to protect themselves. And in the year 2014, for instance, the same Turkish government that is right now attacking the Kurds and calling them terrorists, the same Turkish government helped the same forces to cross from Iraq through Turkey into Syria to help Turkey in 2014. The same Turkish government, when it tried to remove or to, um, to locate a shrine of an Ottoman um, important figure, they worked with the, uh, the Kurdish forces. And right now, the, the same Kurdish forces are being called terrorists. Th there is an organization in, in Turkey called the PKK, Partia Karkaran Kurdistan, and it has terrorist activities. Um, and Turkey says this organization in Syria that enjoys about 80% support of the Kurdish people, of the local people, they're saying all of them are terrorists as well. And I don't buy the story. I have many Kurdish friends who have connections to Syria, and they say how these people support the Kurdish forces. I, I'm not justifying the atrocities and the human rights violations that the Kurdish forces have done. The Free Syrian Army, according to Human Rights Watch, did many, um, uh, committed many human rights violations as well. Um, we cannot say that one group is better than the other group. What I'm trying to say is, this is a human story. These, these people are, have, uh, have been oppressed. I don't see that they are betraying right now their own mission. We didn't leave them any other chance. I mean, they have, Turkey would have um, just taken over the land or massacred them. They had to build an alliance with um, Assad. And if you look what um, Turkey did in Afrin, Afrin is a city in Syria mostly populated by um, Kurds and Arabs. Turkey invaded that city, and right now it is occupied by Turks. And if you talk to Kurdish people in that city right now, they say, we are not able to speak our language anymore. We are being assimilated into the Turkish ide ideology. And um, I fear the same thing would happen to Kurds when Turkey would take over uh, and occupy the land uh, in which the Kurds in majority uh, live right now in Syria.
Oh, Ben, you, you look like you had something you wanted to say. I'm trying to be civil as possible. Okay? Please. Please. <laughs> okay. I think it's absurd, absurd to think that what the Kurds are doing in Syria isn't terrorists. If it's not, then what is it? Is it good? I have videos on my phone I can show you right now what Kurds are doing to Arabs right now and other Kurds. To say that it's not that bad or... or let's be real. I mean, with all due respect, I know you have your feelings and your justified rights against Erdogan. I get it. I don't like Erdogan at all. The guy's authoritarian. We, he's consolidated power. I mean, we're, we're just running the same story again. But if we're not going to point fingers, I mean, let's be real. Turkey took land from Syria too. Marcian. I mean, we want to we go back to history. We can talk about history. But the reality is the Kurds are taking land from the Syrians. What is, that is my question. And I brought, I brought this up in the beginning of the conversation. What was the whole point? of the United States backing the Kurds, the Kurdish forces at the end. What was the point? What were they hoping to get out of it? Were they hoping to take away land from the Syrians? And, and then to, to, to differentiate, this is what's frustrating me, people differentiating the Kurds from the Syrian population at large, that is so disrespectful to the Syrians themselves because they've, we pride ourselves in Syria for our diversity. I mean, for God's sake, my own aunt married a Kurdish guy from Aleppo. There is this, this, this supposedly hatred that, we, that, that, supposed, that is being made up about the Arabs and the Kurds is ridiculous. Is there a history? Sure there's history. Sure there's, there's history between Syria as a country and Turkey as a country. But the reality of what's going on is that right now we're, we're telling Turkey, you know what, you know, never mind, you shouldn't have done that, back up, back up, back up. Russia, come back in here, come back in here, come back in here. Uh, Iran, come back in. That's exactly what we're saying. And to say that Assad is not, I mean, listen, by making the argument that the Kurds are doing maybe a good thing by working with Assad now, it is disgusting to me. That's almost worse than saying working with the Russians. Because if they had, uh, let, me, let me put it this way. Why didn't the opposition work with the Russians? Why didn't the opposition work with Assad? Say, you know what, never mind, never mind, never mind, never mind. Come help us out. You know, we're only three million here. This is all we have left. We're, we have a lot less than the ISIS and the Kurds. And uh, How about you just come help us out? Why didn't they do that? They would have saved themselves so much money, so many lives. But why didn't they? It was principle. It was principle. Professor, can you unpack this a little bit for viewer, uh, yeah, listeners who cannot understand yeah. this? Uh, I, I don't want to get into the weeds of what has been just discussed. I want to give sort of a broader sort of um, a bird's eye view of how we've gotten to this point of crisis once again in Syria. And I think we are here uh, at this point of crisis in Syria with the world watching because a series of decisions that were made by the major powers early on in the Syrian war to just give up on Syria, to assume that what happens in Syria will stay in Syria and won't affect the broader region and it won't affect the broader world. And so that was precisely the calculation that the Obama administration made in the summer and early fall of 2013 after the major chemical weapons attack on the suburbs of Damascus where uh, as your listeners might recall, there was a red line that was drawn, and Obama said if there's chemical weapons used, that would change his calculation. The calculation at the time was, look, you know, what's happening in Syria was horrific, was very ugly, but core U.S. national interests weren't at stake. 
So we'll just try and contain the conflict. And it's precisely that decision that then opened the door for Iran and for Russia to step up their support for the Assad regime, which by 2013, it looked like it was about to fall. In fact, there's you know, a lot of evidence to suggest that on two occasions, in 2013 and 2015, the regime was about to fall, but because of external support, it was resuscitated. But anyways, that calculation to forget about Syria, hoping Syria will stay in Syria, the conflict in Syria will stay contained, um, effectively led to um, the expansion of the war, the further destabilization, destabilization of Syria, and the rise of ISIS forcing the United States then to recalculate. We're going to go into Syria, but we're not going to deal with the underlying problems of the Syrian conflict. <clears throat> we're going to limit it just to try and get rid of ISIS. And that was a plan that Obama started in 2014. Trump continued that policy. And now that ISIS was defeated and crushed, there was another sense of, okay, now the conflict is over. We can all go home. Syria doesn't matter. Assad seems to be winning. Let's go and just um, uh, deal with our own internal problems. But once again, we're seeing that the conflict in Syria is not staying in Syria because of the presence of a major refugee population in Turkey and because of Erdogan's internal problems. He's using this opportunity to try and, you know, Erdogan, that is, is trying to sort of solve his, his internal political problems by, um, by invading northeastern Syria. And now the international community is watching this conflict again. The point that I'm trying to make here is that without effective leadership uh, at the global level, um, among the major powers to try and solve the problems of Syria, um, this conflict is going to continue for many years to come. It requires a coordinated effort. It requires a focus. And the problem right now is that we are um, at a particular moment in history where we have very incompetent and morally bankrupt leadership here in the United States and other major countries around the world, um, particularly in Europe, are dealing with their own internal problems with the rise of right-wing populism and you know their own crisis of democracy. And we have an assertive Putin. And we have an assertive Iran that are willing to actually um, invest in Syria to ensure that their side wins, and that's exactly what's happening. So I suspect that we are going to be talking about Syria for a, a long time to come. Uh, the only hope, possible hope, is that, you know, maybe there might be a better president in this country in 2020 who has a sense of um, responsibility for international security and is willing to do the type of really heavy lifting that's needed to organize an international dipl diplomatic effort backed by the serious threat of force to bring all of the key parties together to try and solve this conflict. There was actually one moment, I'm very critical of Obama's Syria policy, but if you follow the story as closely as I have, there was a brief moment at the end of 2015 where there was a series of diplomatic negotiations that the United States was leaving uh, that was broadly known as the Vienna process, where to Obama and John Kerry's credit, they were able to bring all of the key players in the Syrian conflict around the table to sort of uh, identify a broad blueprint for a future Syria that was rooted in a political transition away from Assad to a Syrian sort of political uh, transitional authority that would write a new constitution and have elections. Everyone was at the table, the Russians, the Iranians, the Saudis, um, the, the Emiratis, the Americans, the Europeans. And in fact, it manifested itself in a UN Security Council resolution, 2245, that laid out this blueprint. But, of course, what happened, and I think it was a blueprint that actually had some legs, what happened is that the Obama administration was not interested in backing up that plan with any serious investment. Russia identified that the United States under Obama wanted to back up, 
back out, didn't want to invest, didn't want to support its um, you know, political claims and back up this UN Security Council resolution. And so that's precisely when we saw the major attack on Aleppo, the major sort of expansion of the war. And you know that brings us to where we are today with basically Assad dominating and expanding his control, Russia and Iran consolidating their influence in the region. And now we've seen the conflict in Syria flare up again um, as a result of these sort of dynamics. So, you know, I think we're, we're, we're at this moment of crisis. I mean, for example, one question that should be asked is, why are there 3.6 million Syrian refugees in Turkey? Why can't they go home? Well, they can't go home because there's a, a dictator in Damascus that has um, forced these people out, and they're not going to go back to that dictator as long as he's in control. So there's a, there's a longstanding you know, Syrian refugee crisis. There's over you know, 5 million Syrian refugees that are displaced now. Um, what's the future for these people? And there's a sense that no one really wants to deal with those underlying issues. You know, I'm all in favor of blaming Trump and blaming Erdogan for getting us to this point of crisis. That's easy. I think what we need to appreciate is that this is a, a, a problem that goes back to the Obama administration, that goes back to the Europeans basically just sitting on the sidelines and waiting for the United States to lead, and it brings us to another point of conflict. So, you know, we might solve this particular problem in in Syria in some way with probably Russia at the end of the day stepping in and striking some deal with Erdogan to give him what he wants and advance Russia's interest in the region. But that's just going to be a temporary you know, a solution to a deeper underlying problem that goes back to, I think, 2011 when the war in Syria begins, and it, it, it creates this type of mayhem and chaos. I think we can stop there. We're getting close to an hour, so we want to start into final thoughts. We can go first if you'd like, so you can kind of see what it's like. I know, Professor, you've done it with us before. Well, Everybody's I've, I've so polite. I've had my final thoughts, so yeah, I don't think there's anything more to say, yeah. so I'll leave it to you. Okay. Um, yeah, feel free. Go ahead. Please. 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 I spoke a lot. I'll tell you what. I'll start then. How's that? <laughs> So my final thought for today is I want to tell Crisanto Duran, feel better. Uh, thank you for stepping out of the race. I don't know what happened entirely, but I, I wish you the best. Thank you for not trying to run for first congressional district anymore. Thank you, Saeed. I just want to say an anecdote from my own background. I have an Irish-American grandmother, and she... There are four grandkids, and she grew up telling us that I was the only grandkid she loved because I had Irish hair. She told the other ones that they all look like Protestants. It's not a Middle East thing. It's really ethnic, ethnic hatred. Did She did kind of sow in between all my cousins and my sister. And we still joke about it today that I'm the only Irish-looking grandchild. I'm the only Catholic-looking grandchild. So it's a human condition, I'm afraid. Also, get out there and vote. Your vote counts. If you've listened to this episode, your vote in foreign policy counts. Simon? I'm going to do a shameless plaque uh, to our Los Angeles area listeners. I'll be speaking uh, on Saturday, October 19 at 2.30 p.m. at the Pasadena Convention Center about uh, my research into the complete erasure of medieval Armenian monuments in a part of the Middle East that's been ignored for too long and um, I look forward to having a conversation with uh, whoever shows up that day. It's actually at a huge conference so there'll be a lot of people but uh, join us if, if you're available. 
before I close, maybe um, I, um, I would like to clarify that in my last thoughts that I mentioned, I'm not saying that the Kurds did something good by joining the troops of Assad. Um, I think they were forced to do that. Um, they didn't have any other chance. Otherwise, they would have been wiped out or taken over by the Turkish government. Comparing the actions of the um, the Kurds to terrorism. Um, as I said, I could pull out many videos of the Free Syrian Army and show the same things about them. Um, I'm not saying that one group is better than the other. They are all committed crimes. Uh, most of the crimes have been committed by Assad himself. Uh, I mean, he um, and Professor Nader Hashemi is absolutely right. Um, we should ask the question why there is 3.6 million refugees in Turkey. And I commend the Turkish government for welcoming and accepting 3.6 million refugees in Turkey. That was good. But Turkey uh, made a huge mistake. They did not do much to for the lack of a better term, to absorb them, to integrate them into the Turkish society. Uh, my uncle, he went to Turkey just last week, and he saw on the streets many, many Syrian refugees begging and eating from tr um, trash bins. Um, so the Syrian refugee issue is continuing in Turkey. Um, for instance, the Huran Ting Foundation, what is a human rights foundation in Turkey, published just recently a report on um, hate speeches in Turkey. And they said after the word Jewish and Armenian, the third um, target are um, Syrians in Turkey. So Syrians um, have to go through a lot of hate crimes, hate speeches in Turkey. This also, I think, led to where we are right now um, um, with the issue in Syria when Turkey tries to go there and take it over. Um, because Erdogan, as Prof Professor Nader Hashemi said, wants to... Um, is dealing with the issue and at the same time wants to create this safe zone in, in Syria because he wants to build infrastructure, hospitals, houses, and so on in Syria. Who is going to build it? Probably his close buddies, um, his construction companies in Turkey. And he is hoping, according to reports, to get $70, $27 billion from the European Union to rebuild that area and to um, locate um, the Syrian refugees, some of them, back to Syria. So in order to boost the Turkish economy again, which is uh, right now suffering, actually. Um, besides that, I would like to thank all of you for um, inviting me here. It was a pleasure speaking here. I am, as I said, um, with an organization called the Multicultural Mosaic Foundation. You can find us on, um, in social media, and our website is mosaicfoundation.org. The listeners, um, please come and join us for our upcoming events. Thank you. Um, so I would urge everyone to check out the Syrian American Council. Um, they do a lot of grassroots work in the United States. They worked with, uh, with a lot of congressional members and Senate members. And um, right now there's a, a bill called the Caesar Bill, essentially. I forgot the, the name of the HR. I forgot what it was exactly. But it's, it's, you can just Google it, the Caesar Bill. And it's actually a really good bill. Um, and I would urge everyone to Google that and, and look into it. Obviously, the, the issue with Syria is hits home to me, and so forgive me if I was um, a bit um, frustrated and upset and I raised my voice. I, this issue hits home for me very deeply, and it's very, very complicated. And when you eat, breathe, drink this stuff every day, you know every video, you've seen every issue, and you can tell the nuances between. People will just generalize, say, this is bad and this is bad. Yeah, this is bad and this is bad, absolutely. But this one is a little better than that one. 
This one is a little worse than that one. And so that's where I come in and point out those differences. And unfortunately, those differences are forcing people like me to say the absurd. Like, oh, why not support Erdogan? Why aren't we going into, who in the world would want another foreign country to invade them? Why would you say, hey, um, Mexico, come in, come take Mexico, come take, you know, Texas and all take the, Texas back. come take them back. You know, we, we broke the treaty. I mean, we're sorry about that. Here, come take them all back. I mean, we, you don't encourage that behavior. But the Syrians have reached such a horrible low, such a horrible low, that now we're, we're, at, we're asking anybody to help us out. I mean, when Russia got involved, why didn't they create safe zones for people that didn't agree with Assad? Why didn't they do that? They could have done it. Why didn't the Iranians, if they were all in good faith, they were all in good faith. We're here to stabilize the region. We're here to keep Assad in place. But we understand there are people with differences of opinion. Regardless, you don't need to go to Turkey. You don't need to go to Lebanon. You don't need to go to Jordan. Come over here. Stay here. They didn't do that. No one did that. Not Iran. Not Russia. They all could have. But none of that. We begged them. No fly zone. No safe zone. During the Obama administration, we begged them. And no one did anything. And so then someone says, hey, you know, I really don't like this... Um, Kurdish uh, movement that's happening in Syria. They've gained so much land now. They're becoming much stronger. Turkey has their own issues with the Kurds. Uh, historically, if we come in, if we come in and we take, we take a lot of these places, then yes, I argue that I am totally against any, civil, like any civilian casualty. These, this is, I mean, this goes without saying. I, I, I can't believe I have to point this out, but they're also Syrians and I don't want them to die. So if the Turkish government is coming in and killing civilians, obviously I don't want that happening. But let me put it this way. There are many more, there's much more blood on the Russian hands than there is on Turkish hands. I'm just saying that as a fact, okay? You can say that there isn't, there's nuances. It, it's just, the, the fact is more bombs have been dropped by Russians, more killings have been done by the Iranians than so far the Turkish. And if anything, the Turkish have actually helped us out. They've taken so many of us. So we owe a huge debt to the Turkish people because we would have just, those three million people would have just been dead if they didn't go to Turkey. So again, I, 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 forgive me for you know, my, my frustrations, but it's just, this is such a, a deep issue and I, I urge everyone to do their research about this, do their research. I understand, thank you so much for that. We really appreciate all three of you being here. We realize this is a very sensitive topic and uh, we appreciate Professor you hosting us here at DU again. Um, it's a beautiful campus, and we really appreciate it. Uh, but that's all the time we have, so if everybody wants to say goodbye, uh, thank you. Yeah, goodbye. Thank you. Yeah, fuck them when we say we're not with them We 